0: Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one with me this morning, Ephesians chapter one. What should our response be to what we saw last week? That is that God made us for His glory. We sang about this earlier, I sing the mighty power of God. what What should our response be? What should this cause us to do? If God made us for His glory, then what should we do? The main point in verses 3 through 14 was that we should put ourselves in a position to gl- to glorify God personally. And Paul is is going to give us all sorts of ex- exhortations throughout the book that lead us to a place where we are we are living a life that is worthy of our calling, that we are glorifying God in our bodies, in our marriages, in our church. But Paul doesn't stop there. As he often does he thinks corporately not just individually that is he thinks about the body as a whole and so one of the great ways that god gets more praise one of the great ways that the glory that is due to his name is ascribed to him is through his church and it is through the whole body of jesus christ glorifying god in with their lips and with their actions and so notice how paul begins the Next section this next sentence verse 15 he says for this reason okay so he's he's uh continuing with a thought that he already had in the previous section verses 3 through 14 he's saying for this reason that is because god exists for his glory we saw that last week and we exist for god's glory then paul prays for the Ephesians' faith to grow even more. And that's what we're going to see today. Paul prays for the faith of the believers to grow even more. Let me read our passage uh, for us this morning, beginning in verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. This is the Word of God. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working Paul recognizes, and I think we ought to recognize, that Christians, that the body as a whole needs to grow in grace. That is, that we need to grow spiritually. Now, verses 3 through 14, I mentioned last week, is one sentence in the Greek language. In our Bibles, it's about four sentences. If you have a New American Standards, it's four sentences. And the same is true for this week, that verses 15 through 23 is also one sentence sentence in the Greek language, but it's broken down into four sentences. And uh, in the English language, which help us kind of uh, to break it down. Otherwise it might be a little bit of a run on for us in our language. So Paul Paul does this and and part of the purpose for it is he's driving at one point and then he's building on it, he's supporting it. Like last week we saw that the main point was That we need to praise God for His glorious grace. That that He is the God of glory. And the main point this week is that Paul is praying for their spiritual growth. And everything else is supporting that main point. That he's praying for the, the Ephesians' spiritual growth. Notice first in verse 15 the prompting of Paul's prayer. The prompting of Paul's prayer. That is their faith. He says, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Paul here is writing from a Roman prison. Paul was in Ephesus in the early 50s. That is A.D. 50s. And he was writing this letter in the early 60s. So about seven or eight years had passed since he had last saw them. He was in Ephesus for about three years. So it was Probably leaving there around 54, 80, 54, and then he wrote this around 8061 or 62. And so, after seven years having passed, not seeing the Ephesians as a whole, he hears about, from a report, about their progress of their faith and their love, those two specific things that he mentions in this verse. And it's a good report that they are progressing in it. And in light of this, in light of these believers aligning themselves with God's purpose for them, which was last week, to exist for his glory. Since they're aligning themselves under what God wants them to do, Paul is thankful. Notice the fervency of his prayer in verse 16. He says that we could supply the word I from verse 15. I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in our prayer. He receives an update on how they're doing spiritually. And he couldn't stop thinking about them. He couldn't stop praying for them. He continually thanked God for them. And then he continues on in this prayer of thanksgiving and turns it to a prayer of request or supplication. He now asks God for something. And that's what we see in the rest of the passage. He's asking God for something specifically about the Ephesian believers. What is that? Notice in verses 17 and 18 the goal of Paul's prayer the goal of Paul's prayer, and that is that they would grow in grace. The goal of Paul's prayer is that the believers would grow in grace. The source of this grace is from God the Father, that the God, verse 17, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. You see what he's doing there? He's connecting what he had just said in verses 3 through 14 to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, grace," he says three times. Now the Father of Glory, the one we talked about already, is the one who supplies you with the faith and the love that you have. He is the source of your faith and your love. It's not sourced in them. He attributes the the he gives the credit where it is due. It it, it belongs to God. It is the God of Glory, and that is the way. Um, That is the way that we ought to think about God's glory. That as we strengthen our faith, as the Ephesians would strengthen their faith, this would uh, increase the amount of glory that's ascribed to His name. Now, I want to make a little bit of a distinction here because I want you to understand that we're not giving more glory to God. God is already glorious on His own. He's glorious apart from us. We're ascribing the glory that's already due to His name when we grow in grace. And this is what Paul wanted to see. He wanted to the, the praise and and the, the life of service to explode in worship to God because he's due that worship. He 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 deserves it because he is a great God. Notice the goal of Paul's prayer and uh which should be a model for our prayers when we pray for other believers. And that is that they would grow in the wisdom of God, verse seventeen. That they would grow in the wisdom of God. Look at the end of the verse that He may give to you, that is the God of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. What is Paul praying for for them? He's praying that they would grow in the knowledge of God. He, he talks about it in two ways. First, a spirit of wisdom, and then a spirit of revelation. Okay, so first, a spirit of wisdom. This could be referring to the Holy Spirit, and we could put a capital S there, maybe that's what Paul intended. That the Spirit who gives wisdom, that, that that Holy Spirit would come upon these believers. Perhaps that's what Paul is saying. Um, that they would get a richer sense of the Holy Spirit, that they would be filled with the Spirit. But more likely, it is like our translators have put it in the New American Standard. It's trad- translated. Notice in verse seventeen with a small s, which refers to a disposition, not the Holy Spirit proper the person of the Holy Spirit, but rather the disposition of wisdom. That that the believers would get a disposition toward wisdom and toward revelation. It would be like uh like what cheerleaders do at a basketball game. They give the crowd a spirit of enthusiasm. Okay, and, and this is the idea here a disposition, a leaning towards what they're supposed to, to do. And that's the idea that I take. I take this to be a disposition. That Paul's praying for for them to grow in this wisdom, this, to have this mindset of wisdom, so that they would grow in the knowledge of God. That, that, that believers would not be happy to go through life without uh, getting the fullest sense of what God is doing. I don't think Paul would be happy to see believers walk through life not understanding, verses 3 through 14, that they exist for God's glory. And that they ought to align themselves with that. That that believers ought to get plugged into what God is doing. To be at the center of what God is doing. And that they would get a greater understanding of God's desire in the world and in the church and in the home. And in every aspect of their lives. This is what Paul's praying for them. That they would understand their purpose in life. Why God designed them. It was not for them, but it was for His glory. Ultimately, obviously, there are some benefits that we receive from God uh, making us in this way, from God choosing us, but ultimately we exist for God's glory. So, a spirit of wisdom. Verse 17 also says he, he prays for a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of, we can include those words, a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay? A spirit of revelation. the word revelation has the idea of removing the hostility that we naturally have toward the scripture. This is not a formal revelation of being able to, you know, uh write scripture or something like that, or be able to receive direct uh word from God. Instead, it's it's the idea of removing the hostility that we have towards the revelation that we've been given. The the significance that it has in our lives. And so the idea here is that we have a disposition toward accepting the revelation that God has given to us, and it, we see this further in verse eighteen. He says, "Further, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened." So, what is he praying for them? He's praying that they grow in wisdom, not so that they can be able to, you know, carry out them, carry themselves out in, the, in a world that's that's lost. No. So that they can exist for God's glory so that they can live for God's glory, so understand your purpose and then grow in that in, in understanding where you're supposed to be, get more aligned with where you're supposed to be Paul's highest prayer for believers is not for their health, although he does pray for their health on occasion the The bulk of material in the scripture shows that the, that paul He's most concerned about people's spiritual condition. He's not concerned about numbers. He's not concerned about physical health so much as he's concerned about their spiritual well-being. He recognizes that the greatest battle that we face in this life is not getting more people to pack the pews. It's not having perfect health. Because you, you, Do you realize that you can have meaningful existence even if you don't have those other things? But you can't have meaningful existence without genuine spiritual growth. And so Paul's prayer for them is that you would grow. Colossians 1 says that you would grow in the knowledge and wisdom with all spiritual understanding. He keeps praying for them. Grow in wisdom. Grow in the knowledge of God. And so what I'm saying to you is that the highest goal in all of life for you is to know God. This should be what you pursue in life. That you search for the truth of God which comes from His Word, like you are searching for hidden treasure. If I told you that I had a map of our land right here and there was some hidden treasure in there, and on the map it told you exactly where that hidden treasure was, how many of you would be sitting here right now? Right? We search for hidden treasure like it means something. And Proverbs 2 says this is how we ought to search the Word of God. As if it has purpose, it has meaning, and it does. It teaches us to do what is right, to be in line with God's will, and it teaches us to avoid evil. And by the way, this should be our prayer for other believers. This should not only be our goal in life, to know God, to pursue the knowledge of God, but it should be our prayer for other people, particularly those who are members of our church, to whom you have joined in covenant with. That our prayer for them is that they would grow in their wisdom of God so that when you go through, hopefully on a regular basis, through the members of our churches, you're praying for them. You should be praying for something very specific. That they would grow in knowledge and spiritual understanding. Yes, we have physical problems and we ought to pray for them. It, it is presumptuous of us not to pray for those things. Like King Asa who consulted the doctors but did not consult God. Or like Joshua who when he was seeking a a matter of wisdom with the Gibeonites coming, he he just sought his own counselors and not God. So that that was wrong in those cases. So I'm saying not to the exclusion of those other things, but the most important thing that we can pray about for other believers is not their health. It's not their financial well-being. About their spiritual growth. There is nothing greater in life for the Christian to pursue than spiritual growth, and this is what we ought to pray for them. Why? Why ought we to pursue this idea of knowing God? Why should we pray for others in this way? The answer is in first, the end of verse 18 and then verse 19. This is where Paul really begins to unpack the great riches that we have in Christ. At the end of verse 18, I, we'll read the whole thing. Verse 18 I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. There are three things there. And we could call these the purpose, the purposes of Paul's prayer. Okay, The purposes of Paul's prayer. Number one, that these believers, that we would know the hope of our calling. That we would know the hope of our calling. Look at the end of verse 18 again. So that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What is talk, Paul talking about here? We briefly looked at this call of God last week. You remember in Romans eight twenty nine and thirty, when we so, saw that those who whom God had foreknown, He predestined, and those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. Okay, so we have that great. Chain of uh, The chronological chain of how God chooses a person before the foundation of the world. And then He calls them and then justifies them and glorifies them. This is what is known as, theologians call this, the effectual call. The effectual call. That is, it affects faith. It guarantees faith. When God calls a person in this way, they answer. They have to answer because they are His sheep. And Christ's sheep know his voice and they follow him. Now what I want you to understand is that there's also another type of call that's talked about in the scripture, and that is the general call. The general call that says like when says that God calls on all people everywhere to repent. Think about that for a second. God calls on all people everywhere to repent. Now, does everyone everywhere repent? Absolutely not. Okay, so that's a general call. That's not part of that great, beautiful golden chain in Romans chapter 8. Those whom He foreknown, fore, foreknew, He predestined and He called. That's not the type of call that's talked about there. That's an effectual call in Romans 8. But when God calls all people everywhere to repent, He's talking about a general call, that He, he has a demand for all people because He owns them. Right? He made them. That's a general call. So what are we talking about here? Um Paul's talking about the effectual call. Okay? The effectual call that everyone that God calls in this way in verse 18 they respond. So, here's what Paul wants believers to know. He wants them to know the hope of their calling. Okay? And the hope of their calling is not he's not talking about a wish, you know, like we use the word hope generally to talk about a wish, I hope you have a good trip. trip. It's, it's kind of a wish, right? We, we're not guaranteeing anything. But when the Scriptures talk about hope, it's talking about a, a firm confidence on the basis of truth. So He's wanting them to see that you have a firm confidence on the basis of your calling. Why? Think back to Romans 8 again. Because God had foreknown you and because He chose you or predestined you he has called you, and if He has called you, then you can be guaranteed that those next two things will happen. You will be justified, you are justified, and you will be glorified. This is the hope of your calling, this is the confidence that you have, that when God calls you to salvation, you will be changed. That you, will be, you will be being changed in this lifetime, and you will be finally changed like Mabel was last night. That's the effectual call of God, and that's the great hope, the confidence that we have. So, Paul is saying, I pray that you have confident certainty and the guaranteed change that is taking place in your life because of your calling and salvation. And what, what is part of that purpose? Obviously, the main purpose is for God's glory. We exist for God's glory. Look at verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. Here's one of our purposes. This is one of the ways that we glorify God. To be holy and blameless. The idea of sanctification, growth in godliness. Paul's wanting them to understand what God is doing in their lives. And as they do, they have this rich confidence in it. The second purpose of Paul's prayer is found at the end of verse 18. The very end. What are the riches... Okay, So this goes along with uh, what he says there in the middle of the verse. So that you will know what is the hope of his calling. You could say number one. And then that you will know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This is the second one. Okay, So you need to recognize the structure of this, that these all go back to so that you will know. See, each of those phrases start with what is the hope of his calling, what is, and then what are, and then verse 19, and what is. Okay, So you need to see how those uh, all support... That you will know. So Paul's praying that they will know the hope of their calling. Then number two, that they will know the riches of their inheritance. Notice what Paul says here though. The riches of the glory of whose inheritance? Of His. So referring to God's inheritance. And that has led some scholars to believe that we are God's inheritance. Wouldn't that be a great thought if if when God received an inheritance that it would be us. Um, And the idea, idea there would be that the inheritance which is for God, that is that He receives, He receives the inheritance. But I'm not aware of anywhere in any other place in Scripture where we see that God receives an inheritance, let alone that we are His inheritance. And if we understand how adjective pronouns work, then we recognize this could also mean instead of the inheritance which is For God, it could also mean the inheritance which is from God, right? For example, I could take the phrase, I could give you the phrase, his money. And I could be referring to the money which is for him or the money which is from him. And what's going to determine whether that is for or from? And the answer is the context, right? Dad wired me his money so that I could buy the car. Whose money is it? Is it for him or from him? It's from him, right? It's not for me. He wired me the money. Or I could say, Fred earned his money from working 40 hours. Was that money that was for him that he received? Or was it money from him? He earned it, right? So it's actually for him. It came to him. He received it. And the same idea could go here at the end of verse 18, that that his inheritance could mean the inheritance which is for God, which then would be us, or it's the inheritance which is from God. What I've already suggested is that I don't know of any place where we are called God's inheritance, but rather that we receive an inheritance from God. So I believe Paul's point here is not, you know, God loves you and is pleased with you, but rather... Grow in the grace of the knowledge of God because of your future inheritance. Because of the riches that you have stored up for you from God. Grow in the knowledge of Him. Don't focus on your current financial and physical despair. Focus on the riches that you have in Christ. You are joint heirs with Christ. Christ. The same blessings that fall upon Christ because of all He is and what He has done are going to fall upon you. Think of it. Even though you don't deserve it. This is the riches of the inheritance that come from God. The third thing that Paul wants believers to know is in verse 19. So that you will know what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. And this is where he spends the rest of the text. This phrase again, modifies no in verse 18. I, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened to know the hope of his calling and the riches of his inheritance and the greatness of his power. It's not that Paul wants them to, you know, have more power. like, you know you need to grow in your power, but rather that you understand the, the access that you have to his power, the power that you already have, that's the idea. And this awareness of God's power is no small thing. If we miss this, we're missing a huge part of our Christian life. We need to understand the power that God has given to us. The foundation of Paul's prayer is found at the end of verse 19 to the end of the, the, the chapter. The foundation of Paul's prayer It's in keeping with God's strength. And now Paul takes some time to talk about the strength of God. He says, I want you to know about that strength, but let me talk to you about that strength for a second here, okay? First, this power is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Think of God's great power. Can you think of a greater way that God has displayed His power in all of human history than the resurrection? Creation was an extremely powerful expression of God's, God's might. The exodus was a, a probably the greatest display of God's power in the Old Testament, wasn't it? But was not God's power displayed in the most profound way when He brought Jesus back to life? Because what did that accomplish for all those who would follow Him and all those who had trusted in God before Him? It accomplished... A conquering of death and sin. It guaranteed our final final victory. When He was raised from the dead, it solidified His rule over Satan and evil. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that through the resurrection, death was conquered. No longer does death have a sting for believers. That's the kind of power that God has. It was displayed in Jesus being raised from the dead. But it's also a power that gave Christ rule Over all things, verses 20 and 21, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God's power was on display at creation. Yes, at the Exodus. Yes, but in his greatest way, at the resurrection. And then at the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God where he reigns over all things. Where he has the right to rule as sovereign Lord. And while now we live in a time of disputed sovereignty, that is, many people think that Satan is in control of this world. That he has the final say on what happens in this world. We know that, that that's only, it's not a real sovereignty that Satan has, right? It's a disputed sovereignty. It's actually sovereignty on a leash. Because God, Jesus Christ specifically, because of God the Father, has sovereign rule over all things. And one day it will be seen by all. Philippians 2 says at the name of Jesus what's going to happen. Every knee will bow to His sovereign rule. Because he is the King, not everyone recognizes that right now, but it will be seen. He will be seen to be the sovereign ruler. That's the kind of power that God has, and the same power has exalted Christ over all. In verses 22 and 23, he has been put in a place of sovereign, rightful ruler. And the reason that this universal reign of Christ is so important, why Paul talks about this in these last verses, why did he take four verses to talk about this? It's because Paul wants believers to know, remember, verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. He wants us to know that the same power that it was in, at work when Christ was raised from the dead and seated with Christ and given sovereign rule over all things is the same power that's at work among us who believe. This is the power that we have already because of Christ. You see, we can be confident that the way that Jesus leads us, He being the head of the church, will not be Blocked by an obstacle that God doesn't want to put there, right? Why? Because if, think about it this way, it's a logical conclusion that we need to come to. If Jesus is the sovereign ruler over all things, and He is, and He is our leader, and He is, what does that mean for the direction that we're going? Do you see? It means that we can trust our leader that nothing outside of this institution that He's made us a part of, the local church, the, the full universal body of Christ, nothing outside of it can stop us from doing what God wants in this world. Do you see? Nothing. Notice the description of Christ's body here in verse 23. Okay, At the end of verse 22, he, here He makes the connection. And He gave Him as head over all things, Okay, he's head over all things, but he's given this same head, Jesus Christ, to the church. And then notice how he describes the church. Verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We need to understand this last phrase here in verse 23. Does it mean that the church fills up what's lacking in Christ? Okay, Is it like, you know, if we take the bride and groom image that is there in the Scripture, is it like a wife compliments a man that he that she fills up what is lacking in the man is that what it means that it that that the church his body fills up and is the fullness of him that that we supply what is lacking for Christ that could be the idea. So, uh, several scholars actually take it this way. So if you you uh, take it that way, then you are actually in good company. But I would suggest to you um, that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense theologically. Um, Instead, the fullness here, look at verse 23, which is His body, the fullness of Him. The fullness actually has a passive sense. The idea of the phrase, the fullness who fills all in all, is not that Christ fills up the entire universe and then we fill in the, the gaps, what is lacking, because there's nothing outside of His control, right? If He's ruler over all things, there's nothing that is lacking. Instead, it is that Christ fills up us. He is the all in all. He is the, the one who fills up all the gaps in all the universe. And there's no opposition to this sovereign one. Listen to Matthew 28, 18. All authority has, has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Jesus says. Then what did he say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and do what? Make disciples of all nations. And so, what that tells us is because Christ is the head of all things, and He is our head, then when He tells us to do something, the success of our mission is not connected to our ingenuity or our ability. Or our wisdom, but it's connected to the power and the authority that we have on the basis of Jesus Christ giving it to us. That we have in Christ this same power that was at work at Him in His body to raise Him from the dead and to seat Him in heavenly places. And Paul wants us to know that power. To recognize that we have it at our disposal, just waiting there. He wants us to recognize us that there's nothing, nothing at all in this world that can separate us from the love of God. It can't separate us from that power. If Christ is ruler over all things, do you think the different obstacles that come into your life or, or in our church are a problem to Christ? Do they slow Him down? Do they make Him rework His plan? Can he not orchestrate all the events of the world or the specifically the events in our world to accomplish what he wants to in our church and through our church? And that's the power that we have. Paul wants us to know the hope of our calling, the great, the, the great um, confidence that we can have in knowing what will happen to us, what is happening to us, and also the riches of our inheritance in the life to come but also in the great power that we have because of our standing in Christ. Let me leave you with three applications this morning. Three applications. Number one, align your purpose in life with God's purpose for you. Align your purpose in life with God's purpose for you. What is God's purpose? What is God's purpose for you? We saw it last week that you would exist for the praise of His glory three times, right? Right? the way that you do that is by living holy and blameless, verse 4. That you allow the Spirit to work in you to make you holy and blameless. That you would live for God's glory. And you would think that everything that I do, I need to think about this in relationship to God. How is this going to affect God's glory? Whether or not He receives praise. Are you doing that? At the end of a long... Hard day full of setbacks and disappointments, is your greatest concern how you feel? Or is it whether God was honored through you? Despite those setbacks, or could I say, through those setbacks and disappointments? If you come to the end of the day after going through such a rough time, not getting what you wanted, or, or having your hope. the things of this life kind of shattered, can you come to the end of that sort of day and say, you know what? Even though I didn't get what I intended to to get, even though I got this news that I didn't want to get, even though I, I had this detour in the road that I didn't want, I could still say that God was honored through me. You know why? Because I lived for God's glory today. I was seeking to praise Him despite my setbacks and disappointments. When you leave the service this morning is the most important thing how the service made you feel that i came to feel better about myself or when you leave the service is is your greatest concern whether god was glorified in your worship of him and in, in the church's worship of him you know i didn't really like that song i I didn't really like that passage. It didn't really speak to anything that I had going and on in my life. You see, when we come in with this sort of consumeristic type mindset, like "feed me, give me, give me stuff for my little needs, scratch my itches," it's going to be. There's going to be problems because we're not living for God's glory in that case, are we? We're living for my satisfaction in the things of this life. Now, um, by the way, I'm not calling for A joyless life. Okay, that if we're happy in God, if if we're satisfied in God, then we must not be doing it right. And So we need to get more miserable for God. That's not what I'm calling for. Okay, Because life with God is the highest joy that you can have. And the point is, is, if your joy, your hope, your confidence is in God, all those other things, yes, there will be grief, but it will be a joyful grief you ever experienced that? The loss of a believing loved one? It's like the the grief that there was at the cross. It was a joyful grief. When we look back on that, even as we'll remember this morning in the Lord's Supper, we look back on that with grief that, that Jesus had to die for my sin. But it's a joyful grief, isn't it? We take joy in the death of Jesus Christ. This is how we go through life. We put our joy in God. And as the things of life start to hammer on us and. Set us back. We can still have joy. Listen to C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory. He said, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. I submit that this notion is no part of the Christian faith. Okay, his point is those people who go to the extreme and say, you know, we really need to be miserable for God. We can't have happiness in this life. And so he's trying to to say that actually our happiness should be found in God, and that's actually a good thing. He goes on, he says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, remember that inheritance we were talking about this morning? It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with alcoholic drink. And unlawful sex. And godless ambition. When infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on, listen to this, making mud pies in a slum. Because we cannot imagine what it meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, Lewis says. We take joy in all the wrong things in this life. And here's what he's saying, is we are like a little child playing with mud pies. We're offered a holiday at the sea and we don't recognize how good it is, and so we continue on with our little mud pies. He said the point is our joy is in the wrong place. We need to put it in what is great, the rich inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. And in that, we should have joy. We should be happy in this life. We shouldn't walk around miserably. Well, how do we know if we're aligning our purpose in life with God's purpose? How do we know if we're at the center of our lives or if God is? Well, there are several ways that you can test your heart to see if you're living for God, if God is at the center. Ask yourself these questions. How do you spend your time? Okay, Allocate the amount of time that you have in the week. How do you spend your time? Obviously, you have certain things that are fixed. You can't change them. Some of them you can how do you spend that time? Is it for God or is it for your uh, godless pleasures? How do you spend your money? What is your your money being used for? What about your thoughts? how do you how do you fill up your thoughts throughout the day when you have free time? How do you use that to think about the things of this life? Are we generally Are we genuinely concerned for people outside of ourselves, or are we living for our own well-being? You know, if someone gets in my way, you better look out. If you don't give me what I want, okay? Are we living for ourselves? Are we living for God? We living for God's glory. Number two. There's nothing greater in this life than knowing God. There's nothing greater. In this life, the knowing God. In order to glorify God, you have to love and trust God. In order to trust God, you have to know God. Have you ever trusted anyone you didn't know? Hey, and the more that you know a person, the more you can trust them. That's the same way it is with God. Those who know your name, Psalm 9.10, trust you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek Him. As you get to know God more, you trust Him more. And so the greatest thing in life is to know God, are you working to get to know God better every day? You know what? Once a week, that's good. I'll come to church, I'll know God then, and that'll be enough. It's like a little bit of fuel in my tank. It's all I need. But are you getting to know God every day? Are you reading His Word? Are you meditating? Are you memorizing His Word? Are you talking to Him in prayer? Just think about it this way. Do you have a growing relationship with God, or has it long been stagnant? Yeah, God gave me everything I wanted. I wanted freedom from eternal hellfire, and so we don't talk to each other anymore. I got what I wanted. I'm out of here. Is that a relationship with God? Is that a growing relationship with God? There's nothing greater in all of life than to know God. And then at number three, pray for Christ's church. Specifically, pray for the expression of the body of Christ that you know. here, This church here in Royal Oak. Pray for one another that the eyes of of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would confidently be certain in God's calling of us. That we would be sure of God's inheritance and put our hope in that. And that we would know the might, the strength of God. The indescribable power that He has given to us. This is what you ought to pray for. Pray this for yourself and for your church, and that the church would know that because Christ is ruler over all the universe, that we can be confident that he is working out everything in the universe for his body. You see all the things that happen outside they seem to be they, they seem to be against us. but here's the way we actually need to look at that, that God is actually using those things for us. We are at the center of what God is doing, that is the local church. The church is an expression of His universal church, but we are at the center of what God is doing. And all of those other things exist for God's glory and for our advancement of, of, of His mission for us. And so this is what we ought to pray for one another. Yeah, pray for physical things. Yes, pray for decisions about Wisdom. But most importantly, and the majority of your prayer should be spent in praying for the spiritual well-being of one another. We are in a real battle, and we need each other. As we fight, as we put on the armor of faith, we can't do it alone. God didn't make us to be alone. He made us to be a part of a church. Let's pray. Our great Father, we're thankful that You have revealed to us that Your greatest purpose in all of life is to magnify Your name, to make Your name known. And we know that there is none like You. We've seen lots of examples in the Scriptures and in our own world of false gods of this world. They don't even compare to You. There's no one like You. And we want to exist for the same purpose that You exist, for Your own glory. And so we pray that You'd help us to find our purpose in life and our greatest joy in life to to live for You, to grow in holiness and blamelessness. And we know that that's something that we can be confident that will happen because all those whom You have called, You have justified and will glorify that You are sanctifying us. We have a confident hope in the calling that You've given to us. And we have a great uh, confidence in the inheritance that we will receive. And that's where we want to fix our eyes. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full into His wonderful face and allow the things of this earth to grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Father, we are far too easily pleased. We spend so much time gaining satisfaction for from things that don't matter a few days from now let alone a few years or for eternity may we be pleased in the great holiday at the sea that we have prepared for us that mansion in heaven that Jesus has promised the eternal presence of the triune god that we will be able to enjoy unobstructed by our sin or by any temple made with human hands. We don't even have to go through a priest. We will have direct access to You, the Triune God. May You strengthen us. Help us to know the strength that we have because of the authority of Jesus Christ that He rules on the throne. May the obstacles that we face in life be recognized by us as something that is only a means to greater grace and a means to accomplish Your purpose. May You do it through us. May You strengthen us in our knowledge of You, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.